looking out at you, one wouldn't really um, get it that this is a practice or a path of happiness. <laughs> I mean, a couple of you are smiling. I mean, I don't smile either when I'm sitting, but it just kind of struck me. Anyway, um, <laughs> tonight I just want to offer just some reflections on the unity of emptiness and compassion. So, I mean, we've been talking about both of these <clears throat> major aspects of the truth, the way things are, especially after uh, Guy's talk of a couple of nights ago and the way we've been speaking about awareness, the sense of real emptiness, that all phenomena are empty of inherent self-existence, that uh, in the moment of awareness, any object can come and go, and it just doesn't matter, you know, that knowing is completely unaffected by whatever's happening. So on different ways we can take that on one level, obviously that can be really freeing, really opening, you know, really uh, from that constriction of self. But other times that can be heard or felt or experienced, you know, depending what's going on in the mind, as disconnected, uh, cold, indifferent, really, you know, kind of this gray void, and what am I doing this for if nothing's going to matter? Is that what I'm practicing for? So I don't care about anything in a kind of... uh, sociopathic kind of a way, it can seem. And what's really important to keep remembering, to keep tuning into, is that the way that this sense of, of real freedom, of wisdom, the path of awakening is spoken of. You know that thing of the bird with two wings, the wing of wisdom, the wing of compassion. Or the way the Tibetans speak about it, which I really like a lot, in that knowing the empty nature, really knowing that, it is freeing, but that's only one aspect of the awakened heart and mind. The, The nature of the pure heart and mind is, yes, empty of any inherent self-existence. They had, they used three, three ways of describing different angles, you could say. The second one is the naturally knowing, the spontaneously knowing aspect, which again, when the guy was talking about chitta, it's like that. There's a sound, you hear it. That's spontaneous. It happens. It's always awake and always available. But the third aspect is really key, or we don't, in our self, experience the totality, the roundedness, the completeness of freedom. And that's that this Empty, naturally cognizant knowing is, as the Tibetans say, ceaselessly responsive. That the natural response of the awakened heart, mind, in any particular situation is that of compassion, or metta, mudita, equanimity. It's responsive. It's not sociopathically, coldly indifferent. And at different times for all of us, in our practice, in our path, we may you know, be more in tune with one than the other. So the emptiness we've talked about, and this is something I ran across from Nyosho Kempo, from his book Natural Great Perfection. I find this a little funny, so don't take it as a, oh my God, I'm doing something wrong. But he's talking about uh, understanding shunyata, or emptiness, It says, the danger for many of us is that we hear too much too soon and we think we have understood shunyata, emptiness. And so we err on the side of the absolute in a nihilistic fashion and are obscured by concepts of emptiness. Has that ever happened to you? Where he says, Nagarjuna said, it is sad to see those who mistakenly believe in the material concrete reality, you don't understand emptiness, but it's far more pitiful are those who believe in emptiness. <laughs> I think that's great. Right? You get that believe in emptiness. It's another concept that it's so easy to put. Well, it's all empty, so it doesn't matter. Have you run into that in people? It's often 
nobody here, of course, and none of us would ever <laughs> fall into that because we're so clear. But um, really often, like people who've done a little bit of reading and really haven't done much practice at all, you're like, well, it's all empty, so I can do whatever I want, that kind of thing. This is, again, how, he, how Kempo went on. Those who believe in things can be helped through various kinds of practice, through the way of skillful means. It's our practice. But those who have fallen into the abyss of emptiness find it almost impossible to reemerge since there seem to be no handholds, no steps, no gradual progression, and nothing to do. Right? So in some ways it's funny, but just for a moment, remember, we're not going to fall into the abyss of emptiness and get stuck there. And nobody here is stuck there or in it. But there's moments, you know, when it's so clear there's nothing to do. And that's really a wakeful, present, true moment. And then a moment later or an hour later, it's not like that anymore. It's a concept. We remember, oh, yeah, there's no one here and nothing to do. But it's not the truth of our alive experience in that moment. It's a memory. It's a concept, right? And we've stopped, and we all do this, we've stopped being totally present and fresh in that moment. We're remembering how free it was when there's nothing to do, but, but really that's not what's happening. And we need to use some skillful means. So playing with that, see, it's very subtle. At that point, it's subtle. This is the other way. When the, the wholeness from the compassion side, the sense of the ceaselessly responsive, it's another way of saying it, from Nisargadatta. Once you can say with confidence born from direct experience, I am the world, the world is myself. You're free from desire and fear on the one hand and become totally responsible for the world on the other. The senseless sorrow of humankind becomes your sole concern. So on the other, on the other side, the emptiness is a little bit what Heather was talking about last night. Once you really, and just for a moment, see your everything, in that moment, the natural response is compassion, tenderness for beings, connectedness to beings. Exactly because in that moment, all the energy, the mental energy, is not bound up in this constant, obsessive, exhausting self-referencing. So just noticing, you know, how much of our energy is in this contraction, this constriction of me, me, me. From that place, and that place is a momentary, everything's momentary, remember, we're not always in the contraction of me, me, me. And most of us who are not yet arhats are not always in the knowing of complete emptiness and natural, spontaneous caring and compassion. You know, we fluctuate, we fluctuate. Psokni, Rinpoche, emptiness and compassion are indivisible. Emptiness is free from grasping to a self. Compassion is benevolence for all beings. And we can see how those two come together, support each other, in big experiences and little experiences here and in our daily life. So when that contraction, that constriction of me is basically seen through, released, not happening in a moment, the natural sense is of, you know, I am the world. The world is me. It's us rather than me. Instead of everything being the way Sokni Rinpoche described it once, I really like this. He said, I write it down somewhere. Well, oh, here it is. He said, the original yardstick, the measurement for samsara, that which everything is measured from, is that feeling of me here now. He says in Tibet, when they're, when they're going to start building a house, the way they lay out the footprint of the foundation is to take a, a, a point in the middle, and get like a string, you know, for how wide you want it to be. And from that point in the middle, you measure all the way around, sort of like, you know, you're making a circle. 
So he's saying the measuring point for samsara, from our place of suffering, that center point is, this isn't a, a thought so much, but the feeling sense of me here now. You know what I mean? When we're just sitting here, we hear a sound, and the felt sense is, what does that mean about me? That sound is disturbing me. How do I feel about that sound? Or not even the thought, but just the felt sense of me, sound over there, it's measured from this felt sense. But does this make any sense at all? I mean, it just so, so that, of course, it's not always present, that felt sense, but a lot of time it is. And that's like the measuring point of samsara. When that's there, then that that self-referencing, that constriction, everything becomes about me and what does it mean about me, me and other. When it's not there, what's naturally expressed is this tenderness for life, this lack of self-centric view, and then the, the natural response of the mind, the heart, is just whatever's appropriate in the moment. It's more inclusive, more kind. Simple, a simple little example that I just remembered today. Uh, one, a long time ago, I was staying in Thailand, and I was staying in a little kuti, little, you know, hut in a, in a wat, a meditation center. And in this kuti, there came, it was my first few weeks there. I hadn't really adjusted to the climate, the bugs, everything. And so in this kuti, after a couple of days, I saw a spider, I mean a really big spider. Like the body, never mind the legs, was bigger than my fist. We're talking a big spider. And running around up in, and, and uh, you know, I mean, I don't, I'm not like phobic about spiders, but I don't love them. And this is big. <laughs> you know, and, and I didn't have a mosquito net. So at first, oh, this spider, you got to get it out in my space. And then, you know, all the normal stuff you think. And then at one point, it just clicked in my mind, oh, actually, the spider was here first. And I'm in the spider space. And then it just clicked to our space. And just for that moment, that's just the release of that sense. It's all about me. And what's the spider? Oh, it's our space. And the, nothing really changed externally, but the whole relationship internally changes. You can still respond, do whatever. I eventually did take that spider in a bag and take it out very kindly. Sorry, you know, I'm taking over your space now. Sorry, I'm bigger than you. I'm taking it away. But at least I wasn't doing it with hatred in my heart. You know, you can still do whatever. And until I could catch it, I wasn't afraid and hating it. A little thing. But you get a sense of how just that shift from the self-referencing to, oh, just things happening. This, 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 not all about me. The natural response to that emptiness, ceaselessly responsive, kindness and compassion. The good news, really good news, is that in terms of the natural response, ceaselessly responsive, compassion, metta, equanimity, clear seeing, these are the natural, they arise naturally when there's wisdom in the mind, in the heart. And as hopefully we've been just hammering on the whole time, the simple moment of mindful presence with something, aware of what's happening without buying into greed or hatred or illusion, just seeing what Heather was talking about last night, just recognizing experience as it is, without a big agenda, without reactivity, without you know, distortions in the perception. That moment-to-moment mindfulness is what allows wisdom to arise. And then quite naturally, like with me and the spider, you don't have to think, oh, I should be compassionate. How can I get? It naturally happens. And then our, our habits really begin to shift naturally through the sati, the mindfulness. That's what we've been talking about. The Buddha uh, talked about three wise intentions in terms of the Eightfold Path, which begins with right view, which somebody was talking about the other night. And the second, I, I spoke about intentions, remember, that what's in the, in the mind, in the heart, what qualities, what mental factors give rise to action, that's what's the seed of karma, wholesomeness or unwholesomeness. The Buddha's rather specific in terms of the second step of the Eightfold Path, which is variously translated as right thought, right intention. He's very specific that the three 
right intentions that arise through clear seeing. That switch from wrong intention is, is um, greed turns to renunciation, to letting go, to ah, openness. And that can then further move to generosity, to dana. Ill will switches to friendliness, to metta. That switches but is replaced by, you could say. And cruelty is replaced with compassion. And clear seeing is no wise intention because that's the wisdom that actually allows for these other clear seeing, these other right intentions to arise. So they happen organically with wisdom, but also we, we don't have to just sit back and hope and pray. I mean, we are cultivating with mindfulness, but we can also uh, consciously tune into when our response of mind and heart is from separation, from fear, from meing, when it can actually begin to shift. You know, the Buddha has a, one of my favorite lines, whatever one frequently thinks about and dwells upon, that will become the inclination of the mind. Interesting. A little scary some days <laughs> when we see what the mind is thinking and dwelling upon. But also recognizing why each moment of pure present moment attention is so powerful. Because in those moments, we're not dwelling in the old habits of meing, of fear, of aversion, of greed. Even if aversion is the object of the mindfulness, in that moment of mindfulness, you're not dwelling on the aversion. And this is really very powerful. So mindfulness is not so self-referential, and that's already naturally cultivating the moments of emptiness of self, if it's really, um, if it's a real clear seeing, real wisdom, it'll have that juice. It may not be compassion, it may be equanimity, because it depends what the situation is. But it won't be that kind of cold, distant, it doesn't matter, disconnect. It won't be that. And when we're in that, there's like a partial, you know, it's kind of a partial understanding of emptiness, but it's not whole. It's not complete. Something's missing. So just keep looking. Look again. So I want to talk just a little more now about other ways how we can consciously tune into and cultivate these beautiful aspects, particularly compassion, metta. And I know in, in the Brahma Vihara, which is of course one way, I know is this, the compassion is described as that quivering of the heart, the natural response of an awakened heart and mind when it comes in connection with suffering. One's own or others, ultimately no different. And the ultimate expression, kind of the total awakened expression of compassion is the way the, in the Tibetan tradition is spoken of as bodhicitta. Bodhicitta meaning basically awakened heart, awakened mind. I just want to read the way it's described, uh, the way Pema Chodron describes it, which is quite down to earth. Kinship with this kinship, with the suffering of others, this inability to continue to regard it from afar, from a distance. This is the discovery of our soft spot, the discovery of bodhicitta. Bodhicitta is a Sanskrit word that means noble or awakened heart, said to be present in all beings, yes, even us. Just as butter is inherent in milk, this soft spot is inherent in you and me. We awaken this bodhicitta, this tenderness for life, when we can no longer shield ourselves from the vulnerability of our condition, from the basic fragility of existence. In the words of the 16th Karmapa, you take it all in. You let the pain of the world touch your heart, and it turns into compassion. This is really our practice. 
is some what Heather was talking about last night, how just that willingness to be with whatever opens into wisdom. This is the other side of that. Willingness to be with whatever, the beauties and the sorrows, the fragility, the basic, inherent, inescapable fragility of our bodies, of our hearts, of all of life, of everything. It doesn't have to be scary, but it's so tender. It's so inescapable. And when we touch it, just let it touch our hearts in one moment. It's the natural response is this compassion, this tenderness for beings. It said, Pema Chodron again, it said that in difficult times, it is only bodhicitta that heals. When inspiration has become hidden, when we feel ready to give up, this is the time when healing can be found in the tenderness of pain itself, in the midst of loneliness, in the midst of fear. In the middle of feeling misunderstood and rejected is the heartbeat of all things, the genuine heart of bodhicitta. So the suffering of beings, it may be so-called other beings. Also, the suffering of this being is also quite adequate to discover, connect with, and trust both emptiness and the tender heart of bodhicitta. This is from His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, who, as Guy said, he's meant to be the, the incarnation of the bodhisattva of compassion. So we figure he knows what he's talking about. So he's talking about bodhicitta. The other way bodhicitta someone talk, is someone I've spoken about, this tender heart of compassion, is that it becomes through this heart of compassion, the motivation, a possible motivation, the highest motivation, really, for our continued and sincere practice, that we practice with the intention to benefit all beings, that through touching this fragility, this tenderness, this compassion for all beings, it transforms into this this deep wish to awaken to awaken from the confusion that keeps us circling in samsara, and not just for ourselves, but for everybody who's circling in samsara. So that's the other way of thinking of bodhicitta. So His Holiness says, how does it develop? The first is with deep insight into what suffering is. Deep insight. And he says, guess where we get that? It arises by focusing on our own experience. Where else will we learn? And that's enough. And then he said, compassion, as we open to our own suffering, the compassion strengthens into a sense of empathy and connectedness with other beings. And interestingly enough, also opening into our own suffering is a path into empathy and connectedness with other beings. Many times I've experienced this where my own particular suffering in a particular time when it's finally really met and accepted. And we definitely go through a lot of layers before it's finally really met and accepted. It moves through from my own particular story into kind of the suffering of beings. And sometimes that's really very touching and amazing how that happens. I can't make it happen. I can remember times it's happened. I can try and kid myself it's happening now. But when it really happens, you really feel it. Like the example that always comes to mind was many years ago, I was in the hospital for a week or so, <clears throat> pretty sick. Anyway, I was lying there and I was in a room with three other women. And at one point, it just kind of hit me. I just looked around, it was three elderly women. I was in the um, orthopedic ward, that just was where they'd had a bed. You know, and there were all kinds of casts and in a lot of pain. And then just from being with my own pain, I, I look, oh, yeah, I'm not here alone. And then it just naturally, I wasn't thinking this, it spread out to how many people are in this hospital? How many hospitals just in this little area of Massachusetts where I was, not even a big city, five or six? And then it just kept going, just trying to imagine how many people in how many hospitals in the world. And that's only the people lucky enough to be in hospitals. And it's just vast and endless. 
This is where we need the two sides. Without the understanding of emptiness, we drown in that suffering. But with the willingness to just open into, oh, it's like this. It moves from the self-centeredness into the vastness, the tenderness for beings. That's why the difficult times in retreat, the difficult times in life, really what Heather was speaking of last night, are so important. And even though we say this over and over, and even though in the interviews we say this, and I say it to myself when I'm in a difficult time, somewhere in there it's so hard to trust. Right? We're in the difficult time. Yeah, yeah, I'm trying to be mindful. I'm trying to have compassion. I know, you know, we give lip service. We try to believe it's really important. But bottom line, we know we have to get through this time to get to the real stuff. The joy, the spaciousness, the emptiness, the piti, the whatever the heck it is, you know. It's really rare that we say, well, I know this place this difficult place of being lost in this obsessive fear, this obsessive anger, this obsessive self-referencing, whatever the story is, guilt, whatever it is, this is the place of juice. This is where emptiness and compassion are going to manifest. Yeah, right. Right. Yeah. So learning to trust it. And the difficult times are also important because what's arising whether it's so-called external or internal. Once it's arisen, it's the, if, the result of past karma, right? Our obsessive patterns, for example, that's the result of what I just read, all the, the habits of our mind. We think about something seven, God, God knows how many times. You know how fast the mind is. Think of your age and how many times you've had that thought about how bad you are, right? How you're no good. Don't, you know, how many times? We think we have a couple of thoughts, oh, may I be free from suffering, and it's going to go away. <laughs> so, so that thought coming up, very familiar, that's the result of our past karma, of our past intentions. How the mind and awareness is meeting it right now in this moment, that's the present moment karma. That's the present moment intention. And so... How we meet each moment of experience, that's the path. How we meet our suffering experience and our beautiful experience, that's the, the manifestation. If we meet it with simple acceptance, with kindness, that's the manifestation of compassion. It doesn't have to be that tenderness, your heart's like bursting out of your chest like they have in cartoons, you know, and you're weeping. And Sometimes it's like that. Mostly not, which is good, because, I mean, how could we get through life if every time we touch suffering we're weeping? Oh, it's so beautiful, you know. It's lovely once in a while, but, but something comes up, that sense of, oh, you are so stupid. And the mind, oh, that's judging like that. Just a little moment of accepting and judging. It's painful. That's compassion. And it's also possible because of the emptiness, the non-self-clinging, the not building a whole story around it. Both of those are happening then. That really is the path. Sharon Salzberg likes to say, to pay attention is to love. And notice, if you're really giving attention, start to someone else, because that's easier than oneself. Just really there, someone's just describing their troubles, their problems, and you, it's someone you care about, and you're able to just really be there, really open, really listening. In those moments, we're not self-referencing. There's no room for that. With total attention, you just this, it's not even thinking of it. Just the self-referencing is gone. There's openness. You're just really paying attention. That's like a quality of compassion, of love, of pure presence. That's what we're practicing. That's what we're cultivating. It's really very powerful. And so then taking it back to yourself, first thinking how, if it's ever happened, how you feel when you're really suffering and there's someone there who can just really be there for you. 
They may or may not be able to do anything. And sometimes, so, well, let me fix it, let me fix it, isn't actually the same thing as being there and really holding in their heart, in their mind, your suffering, as you just talk about it. That sense of someone just bearing witness, of someone just being able to totally be present for you before there's something to do, or maybe there isn't something to do. That, that comes later, but first, just that total accepting, receiving presence. There's something powerful about it, isn't it? So can we turn around and offer that to ourselves? In our moments of huge suffering, in our moments of little niggly, your toe hurts, it doesn't really matter. But this power of bearing witness is huge in this world. So I want to read this little snippet of a poem from Anna Akhmatova. I really like her a lot, you know, who she was. She was a, one of the most famous Russian poets of the 20th century, and her life spanned of the whole, really the whole period of uh, 20th century Russia from before the revolution, which is sort of aristocratic and poet, poet, through the revolution and the civil war and vast periods of starvation and into the whole terrors of the Stalin period. And, you know, she was part of all of that, watching people, other poets starve, her husband and son both being arrested in different purges, uh, herself almost starving and through the the Second World War, when many people were starving in, in, in St. Petersburg and in Moscow from the war. And then all of it, the horrors of the Stalin period. And for most of that time, she couldn't, she wasn't allowed to be published. But even before she wasn't allowed to be published, she was very famous. Uh, and, and Russians just really love their poets. And she's a very famous poet. And so by dint of living through all that, that's what she wrote about, you know. And that was one of the reasons that I think she was so beloved. So this little snippet of a poem is from Requiem, 1935 to 1940. She's talking about in the terrible years of the Yezhov terror. The Yezhov terror was a period in the mid-30s. Yezhov was one of the um, people who worked with Stalin. I think at this time he was head of the secret police, something like that. But it was one of the periods where there was a huge huge amount of arrests, you know, just anyone you knew could be arrested for anything, and uh, people sent off to the labor camps. So her son at this point had been arrested. So Requiem, instead of a preface, in the terrible years of the Yezhov terror, I spent 17 months waiting in line outside the prison in Leningrad. People would wait every day to get news of their loved ones or to try and bring food. So one day, somebody in the crowd identified me, called her by name. Standing behind me was a woman with lips blue from the cold who had, of course, never heard me called by name before. Remember, she was famous. So now she started out of the torpor common to us all and asked me in a whisper, everyone whispered there, can you describe this? And I said, I can. Then something like a smile passed fleetingly over what had once been her face. I don't know, it just so speaks to me of the power of the ability, the willingness to really be in it and open-heartedly bear witness without shutting down, without blame. It connects us. It's really powerful in this world. It's not possible without also some understanding of emptiness. Otherwise, we drown, you know. Otherwise, we go into despair. This is the other side. Emptiness needs compassion. Compassion needs emptiness. Again, from the Dalai Lama. Compassion must be derived from our insight into emptiness of inherent self. This is where the vast meets the profound. The vast needs the profound. How? Without the unity of compassion and emptiness, we can fall into despair. But, and this sounds like, but knowing the emptiness, that people's suffering is avoidable, that it is surmountable, our sympathy for our inability to extricate ourselves leads to a more powerful compassion. But without the emptiness otherwise, though our compassion may be strong, 
it is likely to have a quality of hopelessness or even despair. And I know, I mean, in my own experience, it kind of can go back and forth between the two poles. The emptiness that isn't quite in touch and feels really free, but there's a little disconnect. It can flip to the other where there's that sense of real tenderness in the vastness of suffering and then not quite balanced at that moment by the emptiness. And we fall into despair, helplessness, hopelessness. Big picture, it's okay, right? We're balancing, we're balancing. Small picture to notice when we're in despair, when it's helplessness, hopelessness. I've noticed in myself how easily that helplessness can switch to anger, a sense of view like, you know, um, well, working with, with people who have a strong, say, working in, to save the environment or in peace marches or just to try, you know, someone that you really care about and you see that they're really suffering and maybe something in the environment, in the situation they're in isn't fair or just seems like, why did they have to go through that and not other people? And that sense of sometimes we can touch the pain and sometimes there's nothing we can do. Or people in peace marches, we really, I have friends who go to a lot of peace marches over the years and they often say, it starts out really upbeat, but, but sometimes the people end up being really angry or embittered or having people working long in the environmental movement who feel I have to really use anger in the courtroom. Lawyers, you know, how can I come into the courtroom without anger? The other people are so angry and harsh. I need my anger, you know, and it can feel justified. Or I know in myself when there's this helpless feeling, I have friends in difficult situations and there really is nothing I can do other than really be there, really here, really stay open. And then when that moves into the the helplessness or heading towards despair, I've noticed how a feeling of anger at at anything, you know, can give me a sense of um, a power, a sense of strength, you know. Helplessness, I, I know for myself and really from talking to a lot of people, it's different for everyone, but for many people, helplessness is one of the bottom line feelings we really don't like. One of the ones that many people have, have got a really strong defense mechanism against. And so I can see for myself when it's moving into helplessness, like, well, it shouldn't be like this, you know, and it's, it's energizing. The anger feels powerful, you know, and it's getting something done. You just wallow around in this wimpy helplessness, feeling compassion. What good is that, you know? And so really looking at Again, coming back and looking at the balance that anger may get stuff done, but the real heart of freedom, of real compassion and emptiness, it starts from the inside out, not from the outside in. Again, it's back to that sense of intention we talked about the other night. Where we, in our culture, tend to evaluate an action of what we're doing by the results. If we get good results, it was a good action. We did the right thing. We forget to turn around and see if we're just getting more and more angry. We got the results we want, but we really, you know, ticked off a lot of people and ran over people, and, you know, that's not the point. A peace march where people end up smashing windows and burning cars, there's something missing. There's some, you know, missing piece there. Environmental activists, deeply, deeply committed, acting for the good of the planet, and they're getting eaten up by anger. There's, again, there's something missing in the piece of understanding. Same with us, you know. I mean, we all have, in our own way, strong uh, defense mechanisms that have been in place for all of us about particular, maybe helplessness for somebody. It may be a real sense of loneliness. It may be deep fear. It may be from some deep pain from childhood. I mean, so far everyone I've met, including me, has some really strong defense mechanisms in place that keep our conscious mind from even touching certain aspects of pain, right? This is what Heather was, again, speaking about last night. And I'd say mostly... 
for most of us, when they first were created way back in our childhood, there was good reason for it, right? Like I can see some of my stuff about feeling really um, terror, really, and afraid and unloved and abandoned, but couldn't go there because my mother didn't know and I had to take care of her, blah, blah, blah. As a little kid, those things come up to help us deal, to help us manage, to help us keep. So we don't hate the defense mechanisms. But at this point, it's a different story. We learn to recognize them. And for me, like remember I talked the other night about when my mind hits that crazy place. I just call it that because it feels so intense. And now I think, great, I'm getting close to one of those. That's great. Because I know, as I said, when I can feel, oh, that's that little kid terror, it's like a sense of relief. Oh, okay. I can feel little kid terror. That's okay. I'm not going to die from it. In fact, boom, back into the, the tenderness for beings. Tenderness for that little kid. Tenderness for all little kids. Just essential tenderness. Only possible because of the, the sense of emptiness. Eckhart Tolle put it a nice way. He says, compassion arises by allowing, by non-resistance to both levels of pain. We don't resist the so-called outer pain, the madness of the world, and we don't resist the so-called inner pain, our personal reactions. Both levels. When there's non-resistance, but with wise attention, with mindfulness, with clear seeing, that's when we're really open into wisdom and compassion. And As the Dalai Lama said, our own suffering, our own experience, that's the conduit, that's the way in, that's really all we need, our own particular experience. Gandhi said, almost everything you do will seem insignificant, but it is very important that you do it. So in terms of this, just whatever's arising in our experience, it may seem insignificant, but we start where we are. And this is really where the shift from, you know, we want, I'm assuming, I don't know, of course, everyone here, but I'm assuming people come here with various reasons, but at the bottom we want to be good people, kind people, compassionate people. I'm assuming that's probably, hopefully, (laughs) hopefully that's something in one way or the other we all share. Kind to ourselves, kind to others, as well as free, they go together. But again, the sense of working from the inside out rather than from the outside. I should be kind and compassionate. It looks like this, and then we try to make our behavior match. We know that doesn't work. Starting from the inside out is where there's the wise motivation that comes from moments of really knowing our basic goodness. Those times when you've really recognized and touched just the simplicity of the purity of heart and mind, which we talk about a lot, no big deal, but just, oh, it's like this. The moments Heather talked about when we just stop fighting whatever's going on and open to it, the 10,000 joys, the 10,000 sorrows, oh, it's like this. Those moments of touching with the mind, with the heart, are what give us, begin to give us and strengthen the deep trust so that the the real heart of compassion and emptiness comes from the inside out, not from the outside in. And trusting enough to act from that. Different people inspire me in that. I just want to give a couple of well-known people examples. One, of course, is um, Martin Luther King. Just one um, quotation I read from him where, remember in, um, I think it was 54 when there was bombings of a church in Alabama and four little girls were killed. And he said after that, I have come to see even more as we move on toward the goal of justice that hatred must never be our motive. I refuse to become bitter. I refuse to become bitter. But really touching the heart of deep, deep suffering in a place where I know I would get angry and justified in the angry and overwhelmed. I refuse to become bitter. 
another, this is a little longer, but I love it. This, this man is a, kind of one of my heroes, although I've never seen him. I've only heard him and read about him. James Lawson, again, is from the Civil Rights Movement. James Lawson, I heard him, uh, well, I'd read about him, but I heard him give an interview on NPR in, uh, around Christmas of a couple of years ago. And I didn't, I didn't hear the beginning of the interview. I just came in in the middle, and this man was talking, and then I suddenly recognized from what he was saying who it was, that it was James Lawson. I got really excited. So he was, he was one of the uh, real uh, leaders of the beginning civil rights movement. He's one of the leading theorists now. He's a doctor of divinity and one of the leading theorists even now on, the, on nonviolence, on the theory of nonviolence. And back in the 50s, he was very committed. He's an uh, African-American. I think he's in Ohio or somewhere. He was very committed to theories of nonviolence. He actually went to India and studied with disciples of Gandhi. I mean, Gandhi was dead then. During the Korean War, he was a conscientious objector. And he could have gotten out of uh, going because of being a minister, but he said that wouldn't be fair, so he, he went to jail. And he said, and this I heard in the interview, he said that in jail... I discovered a strength and power in me to live out of my own conscience, to act from his own really deep wisdom and understanding. This is the power of coming from within. So the interviewer was asking him all these kind of questions. Well, how do you deal with violence? What do you do when someone's being violent? And he just said, and I, don't, I can't explain it more than this, it just kind of turns it on its head. He said, you're asking the questions from the wrong angle, you know? Nonviolence stems from a completely different configuration of power. So all, you know, just saying, we think you, people are being violent, what are you doing? He's saying it's a whole other way of looking at the world. So I'll just leave it at that and read this story about him from um, David Halberstam's book, The Children, which is about some of the, the young people in Nashville in 1960 who started all the... the demonstrations, the sit-ins and stuff. So he at that time had come down to Nashville and he was giving, giving the young uh, college student demonstrators workshops on nonviolent action. Remember, they're deeply committed to Christian love and nonviolence. That's where this was coming out of. That's where he was coming from. So they were marching in Nashville and as they were marching, um, a few white toughs suddenly attacked and knocked down a man named Solomon at the end of the line. And they were kicking him, and another guy, Bernard Lafayette, and this was his first chance to really use his training in nonviolence, he came over and he threw his body over his friend to draw the attention of the, of the guys beating him up. And so then they started beating and kicking him. And then Jim Lawson came over, He's the, and he'd been conducting all these workshops. He did not rush over as to an accident or even as if to stop a beating. Instead, he walked over very calmly, as if to a long-standing appointment. His arrival shifted the attention of the whites from the fallen Gort and Lafayette to Lawson. The thing about Jim, Bernard remembered, was that he was so self-assured, so confident, as if he were accustomed to dealing with white toughs beating up fallen black demonstrators every day of his life. The leader of the whites was wearing what was the prevailing uniform of the day for toughs, which was a black leather motorcycle jacket and that big kind of haircut. You know, they call it a DA haircut. When he saw Lawson, he was enraged by his coolness, and he spat at him. Lawson looked at him and asked him for a handkerchief. <laughs> the man, stunned, reached in his pocket and handed Lawson a handkerchief. <laughs> And Lawson wiped the spit off himself as calmly as he could. Then he looked at the man's jacket and started talking to him. Did he have a motorcycle or a hot rod car? A motorcycle was the answer. Jim asked a technical question or two, and the young man started explaining what he had done to customize his bike. <laughs> Amazingly, Bernard thought, these two men were now talking about the levels of horsepower in motorcycles. A few seconds earlier, they had seemed to be sworn enemies. By this time, both Solomon and Bernard were on their feet. The line was moving again, and Jim and the young man were still talking about the man's motorcycle. In that brief, frightening moment, Jim had managed to find a subject which they both shared and had used it in a way that made each of them more human in the eyes of the other. 
As they walked away, Jim waved to the man, and the man remained still, neither accepting the friendship nor, for that matter, rejecting it. It had been a marvelous example of Christian love for Bernard. doesn't solve everything, doesn't solve all the problems, but that to me is like such an inspiring example of how compassion and wisdom work from the inside out. A real courage and it's powerful. And the other aspect though that I just want to mention again of how this courage, this compassion to be balanced by wisdom is the wisdom of equanimity because remember, inequanimity means we can't control the outcome. We can't control the results. So when Jim Lawson went and talked to that guy, he didn't know what was going to happen. When we open to our own suffering to others, we don't know what's going to happen. Life is ambiguous. Situations are complex. So without the the vastness of equanimity, the power of equanimity. And this is the emptiness of knowing all things come and go. Awareness is unstained by all. It gives us the courage and the trust to come from the compassion, the love, the equanimity, the mudita, to let it go into the universe, but no, we can't control. So in equanimity, we we can't control others' responses. We don't always have the big picture. We still need to make decisions. You know, the eight worldly winds come and go. If you've ever had to be the health proxy for someone, like I had for, for my father the last couple of years of his life, my, my siblings and I, and no matter how much of a document's drawn up ahead of time, you can't cover what all the situations are going to be. And you're in this situation, do you put this tube in or don't you put this tube in? Do you take this tube out or don't you take this tube out? You don't know what's going to happen. You don't know what the person would want. You need to come from as much equanimity and compassion, the equanimity of not knowing, but also not, you know, the equanimity of it's not about, you know, my fear, my dislike, my feelings, is try and do the best you can. I remember one time he had a tube in, he kept getting pneumonia, and the doctor said, well, he had, hadn't wanted anything special done, so we're going to take it out, and we're sure he's going to die. So I was there, and I said, okay, do it. Of course he didn't. He didn't at all. He got really strong. He kept doing that. The doctors would be completely amazed. You know, how could he come back from this? So then another time they say, well, you shouldn't put in a tube because he's going to die, but then it'll just make him go on and on. But you put in the tube, and he gets better. You don't know. You just don't know. And every situation is different. So one does the best one can, you know, with a compassion not holding to a desired result. All life is like that. It's so complex. It's so ambiguous. Um, Sister Chan Kong, who works with Thich Nhat Hanh, I use this story a lot, but it's really touched me. She, long ago, in the Vietnam War, she was an activist, as was Thich Nhat Hanh, so neither side, the South or the North Vietnamese, didn't trust him. So one time she was thrown into jail in the, by the South Vietnamese for having distributed some peace pamphlets of Thich Nhat Hans. And she was in a big cell, this is from her autobiography, in a cell with you know quite a few other women, I don't know, 15, 20 other women. And there were also two young girls, 11 or 12-year-old girls, who had just been in a village that the South Vietnamese had just come and swept up everyone there, thinking they were Viet Cong, you know. So she, Sister Chan Kong got released through her family knowing somebody. That's how things work. And as she was leaving and having kind of her outtake interview with the head of the prison, she said, oh, by the way, there's these two young girls here. They haven't done anything. They're not Viet Cong, you know. And it's really they're in this bad environment with all these criminals that, you know, they really should be released. He goes, oh, okay, I see from what you're saying that the prisoners are talking to each other, and this is not okay, so I'm going to really tighten up the conditions here. So how would you feel? Could you walk out from that and not turn bitter and not get angry and not be afraid to keep on acting as best you could? from the best understanding we have. 
a koan, right? It's a koan. Same with ourselves. We meet ourselves with real compassion, our suffering with compassion. And we try to act not just to make ourselves feel better, but what is the most supportive for our awakening. And sometimes we think we're really, we're really seeing everything, but there's little levels of you know, fear, aversion, clinging we don't see. And so we're acting as best we can, but it doesn't quite, you know, we're still somehow feeding our denial system. But it's the best we can do. What do we do? Say, well, I couldn't see, I couldn't do it right, so to hell with it, I'm just not going to try anymore. You know? Other times we do see clearly. Just to have this trust, this willingness to keep going. The Dalai Lama, again, in an interview once, uh, they were talking about how some young Tibetan, young Tibetans were kind of taking him to task, the new generation, saying, look, basically, old man, your nonviolent approach to the Chinese is not working. You know, they're taking over. It's not working. Something else needs to happen which, you know, a new generation is always like that. And in this article, it said that he was really listening, as he does, and even there were some tears in his eyes. And he said, you know, you may be right, but I cannot do otherwise. I cannot be otherwise than to act from nonviolence and compassion. That's just the truth of who I am. And you may be right. That ambiguity, that not having the whole picture, not getting the results, not fixing the world. The Buddha couldn't fix the world. He couldn't even fix his own kinspeople. They kept going to war with each other over water and this and that. What do we think we're going to do? But he didn't also say, I can't fix the world, so I'm going to go into my pleasant abiding here and now, fourth jhana, see you later in 45 years. <laughs> he could have done that too. No, you know, he spent his whole life walking around sharing the Dhamma. And that's all you can do, share it. Share it with yourself, share it with the world. Meet every moment with this compassionate clear seeing and that's that's all we can do it's not being a doormat it's not being passive at all when we're clearly connected with what's here and now again ceaselessly responsive with wisdom the best appropriate action just does present itself Master Shen Yen who's a wonderful uh, he's Taiwanese uh, Chan master he says, talking about uh, no-self, he says, one clearly knows how to behave or respond. As another teacher calls, it's doing the obvious. So something happens, he says, face it, accept it, handle it, put it down. I just love that. Any situation comes up, we face it, accept it, handle it, put it down. Just so simple. So straightforward. No big, fancy, amazing thing. So I'll just end with, again, a quotation from Pema Chodron about Bodhicitta, if I can find it. At the relative level, Our noble heart is felt as kinship with all beings. At the absolute level, we experience it as groundlessness, our open space. So let's just sit quietly for a moment. This is from Choki Nima. When watching the magical display of this world as it seems to be, spontaneously an overwhelming despair and pity well up in me. But when watching its nature of innate simplicity as it really is, I cannot help but feel wonder 
and break out in laughter. When watching the one who feels pity and the one who is laughing, both disappear and cannot be found. Now what to do? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.